Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello, and welcome once again to Exploring Bible Prophecy. In today's program, we're continuing to explore the scriptures dealing with the term, the Son of Man, and this is a uh, term that is applied to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, but it's a term that we need to differentiate and know the difference between it and the term, the Son of God. These are two key terms, and these are one of seven sets of terms that we're going through in this current series on important prophecy terms that we need to to study to understand before we get into the overview of the 30 chronologically ordered prophetic events that are yet to take place, starting with today all the way to eternity that we find listed at the end of uh, Revelation in chapters 21 and 22, the very end of the last book of the last, um, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible. Uh, so it was important that we go back, look at these terms, and then launch into that so that we don't get uh, any degree of misunderstanding in the use of terms because, unfortunately, in the church today, we find people just reading over terms like the Son of God and the Son of Man or the Day of Christ and the Day of the Lord and thinking, okay, that's fine, let's move on, when in reality there are very clear differences in the uses of these terms, they they denote and connote two totally different ways of looking at the program of God throughout the Bible here, particularly in the um, the New Testament as we start to see this unfold and the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, that the Son of God is going to do one thing, the Son of Man is going to do another thing, even though they are the same person Jesus Christ. It's just very important that we understand the distinctive differences. So we've been going through that in point number one on our worksheet that's available from this radio station at their website, uh, in point number one, looking at the Son of Man. And we were going through uh, Luke 22, uh, Mark 14, Matthew 26, looking at the uh, passages where the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, and the scribes, or the the ruling council of elders, if you will, were accusing Christ um, the um, day before and the day of his crucifixion and making the point, asking him, are you the son of God? And he says, yes, I am. But you, referring to them, you're going to see me as the son of man when I'm sitting in judgment over you. And we went into some detail. We're not going to go over that again here. You can listen to the last couple of programs to get a good sense of that, but it, it was a judgment. It was the judgment aspect of the term, the son of man. He's going to judge them. He's either going to judge them at the great white throne, or he's going to judge their future offspring at the end of the tribulation when he comes back the second time. And he makes reference to both of those judgments 
um, in those three passages, Luke 22, Mark 14, and Matthew 26. But then I wanted to transition because I didn't want it to all be negative because it's not all negative uh, in the use of the term the Son of Man. So I wanted to look at how Christ used that during his ministry on the earth the first time as he was doing good things. He was being gracious to the Jews, but he was referring to himself as the Son of Man because they were not believing him. So he was basically performing miracles, as we see in Mark chapter 2, and several miracles to get their attention that, hey, I am the promised, the covenanted, the expected one, the, the, the prophet that Moses talked about in Deuteronomy 18 and so forth, that I am he and that I want to bless you. I want to set up my kingdom right now on this earth. And again, this is Jesus 2,000 years ago telling the Jews at that time the gospel of the kingdom. I'm the king. I'm ready to set up my kingdom if you'll just believe me. So we went to Mark chapter 2. And we looked at verses 5 through 12, and it was one of the um, miracles that Jesus performed, and his audience were unbelievers. So remember, if you've got an audience of unbelievers, he will oftentimes refer to himself as the Son of Man, because that's the way they see him. He would refer to himself as the Son of God if they were believers, because they saw him that way. So the audience is scribes, as we see in um, Mark chapter 2, verse 6, it said, but some of the scribes were sitting there. So he was addressing their unbelief. And in verse um, 9 and 10, just to kind of quickly go through this in the way of review, he he asked the scribes in verse 9, which is easier, referring to himself, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. Verse 10, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. So basically he did both. He said, your sins are forgiven. And then he said, get up and walk, take your pallet and go home. He did both of those to show his power. Because obviously the man could have sat there in his paralytic state, never have gotten up, but his sins would have been forgiven. But you can't see that, and therefore it would not have been impactful, if you will, to these unbelieving uh, scribes that are part of the, the, uh, the ruling council of elders there in Jerusalem that would ultimately call for Jesus' uh, death on the cross. So he's basically saying, okay, I will show it to you because you are hard of heart and you don't want to believe. I'll, I'll visually show this to you. So he told the paralytic to get up. So the people were amazed, but the scribes, they didn't appreciate that. But the point I want to make here is that he's referring to himself as the son of man and that he has authority on earth to forgive sins because in his um, judging position, when he judges men at the second coming, um, there will be a lot of death taking place, a lot of people that will be sent to eternal separation from God in a place called the lake of fire. It's a terrible time of judgment. Uh, And he'll do the same as the Son of Man at the great white throne judgment a thousand years after his second coming, 
after his millennial kingdom has been concluded uh, at the great white throne judgment, then all the unbelievers of all time will be raised and judged and then sent to the lake of fire and eternal separation from God. So the, the, the general um, image, if you will, of the son of man aspect of Christ uh, comes across as negative, as, as being the judge, the, the, the terrible things that will happen to these people. But at the same time, you'll see the term the Son of Man used here uh, in this miracle to make the point to an unbelieving audience that the Son of Man can forgive sins because he will do that as well at um, his second coming because he will judge the whole world at his second coming, and some will be counted as righteous and others will be counted as unrighteous. So he wants to show these people, particularly the Jews, both aspects, even though they do not believe him for who he is. So now let's go to Matthew to uh, to start um, the new portion here. So let's go to the book of Matthew, and let's start in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, uh, and this is right before, this is the beginning of his ministry, and it's right before what's called the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, and that starts in chapter 5. So we're in Matthew chapter 4, and I want us first to look at verse 17 to kind of set context here. And he is an, basically an itinerant pastor, if you will, an itinerant preacher going around by himself, and he, of course, now will start calling his, his uh, disciples and out of the large group of disciples or students, he will then pick his ten, his twelve apostles, who are uh, student graduates, if you will, because um, apostle means messenger. So these are the twelve that Christ selects specifically from that group of disciples to carry his message out to Israel, which they, of course, do later on. Uh, they're commissioned in Matthew chapter ten. But here in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is that gospel of the kingdom message that he's preaching to Israel. The church is not anywhere in view here. It hasn't been even mentioned yet. Uh, And there's really no purpose for the church at this point because Israel is, has not, uh, as you go through the flow of Matthew, has not turned their back on Jesus yet. So what's in view right now is the kingdom being set up on the earth right then. And I say right then in a, a chronological context. They know from a study of the Old Testament that first there's going to be a tribulation. All through the Old Testament, they're told that before the kingdom is set up, there will be a tribulation in which Jesus will judge um, the world, and then he sets up his kingdom. But it would be right then if they would accept him. So looking at verse 17, now now transition down in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 4. Go to verse 23. Go to verse 23, and it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee— so Galilee is basically northern Israel, up around the, the Sea of Galilee. And Galilee would go pretty much all the way to the Mediterranean on the west and to the Jordan River on the east. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming 
the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So he was using miracles to get the attention of the people so that they would listen to his good news, his gospel of the kingdom. Hey, Israel, I'm here. I want to set up my kingdom. All you have to do is believe that I am the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. So uh, setting the stage right here, because this is the end of chapter 4, and just a few, well, three more verses, and you have um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And it says, When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Verse 2, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, and that starts the Sermon on the Mount. And we want to um, take a general overview what he's trying to tell Israel through the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, I am the king if you will accept me as your king, and I am going to lay out the conditions um under which I will set up my kingdom. And he's talking about, as you go through chapters 5, 6, and 7, you see what the requirements are that he placed on Israel at that time uh, that would merit their entering into the kingdom with him. And if they didn't uh, accept those conditions, they would not enter the kingdom. So it's addressed to Israel at the time of Christ. Here's what it's going. I'm going to require of you in order to enter the kingdom. So we see that in uh, Matthew chapter four. Now I want us to go to Matthew chapter six, and to show you just how gracious uh, the Lord is here, that He even shows the Jews how to pray. He even shows the Jews how to pray, and this is what is often called the Lord's Prayer, probably more accurately it should be described or called the Apostles' Prayer because it's what he's saying the Apostles and Israel should be praying. And it says in Matthew chapter 6, so you can see on your worksheets there, Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to go Matthew uh, chapter 6 verses 9 through, and let's go all the way through 15 for context. Um, Matthew chapter 6 verse 9, pray then in this way. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation." but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Verse 14, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. So what are we seeing here in the Lord's Prayer? Because the apostles have come to him, um, or I should say the disciples at this point, they haven't been called apostles yet, uh, asking him, how, how can we pray? How can we pray that uh, this kingdom uh, is accepted by the people? 
And he's saying uh, right there, pray to Father, pray to the Father, and you start out any prayer with adoration of God, acknowledging who God is and the fact that his name is hallowed. And then look at it, verse 10, your kingdom come, which is in heaven, your will be done. Bring your your kingdom to the earth, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. So basically they're saying, yes, Jesus, set up your kingdom on earth. You have come out of heaven from the Father, as you've told us. You've come out of heaven to set up the kingdom that was established in heaven. Now bring it down to the earth. And that in bringing your kingdom down to the earth, that your will be done. So basically they're praying to have this kingdom set up on the earth. Very clear from verse 10. But it's interesting, Jesus went on because Jesus is the one telling them how to pray here. And basically, verses 9 and 10, you have the adoration in 9, then the the, um, earnest request to bring your kingdom to the earth and that your will be your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And then verses 11, 12 and 13, Jesus is basically telling the Israelites, particularly the uh, disciples here, um, to uh, what to do in the meantime to their imploring of Christ, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. Don't lead us into temptation. In other words, help us to deal with the um, the wily ways of Satan, the Antichrist, and the fallen angels that we, we are constantly tempted by. Help us to uh, not be tempted by that, but deliver us from this evil. So it's, in, it's basically imploring him to help us as we um, are here on the earth until such time as your kingdom is set up. So you can see kind of an inclusive prayer here praying for the kingdom to come, but in the meantime, help us uh, to be, if you will, good people, good Christians, even though the concept of Christian wasn't relevant at this point in time, not until the church was created at Pentecost, but nevertheless, to be a righteous person, if you will. Maybe that's a better way to look at it. Help us to be a righteous person that we can have the Holy Spirit stay with us Um, the entire time. Because remember, the church is not in view yet. This is still what you call Old Testament economy because Christ has not gone back to heaven and the Holy Spirit has not been sent to the church yet. So you can see the goodness. You can see the grace of Christ here in the way he has structured this prayer that the apostles have asked for. So we're going to continue with this um, point about uh, the, 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 if you will, the goodness aspect of the term the Son of Man, and particularly having to do with his will, doing his will, as we see in uh, Matthew 6, verse 10, that your will be done. Well, what does it mean to do your will? We want to explore that as we look further into the term the Son of Man. But let's now transition, as we always do on our programs each day, over to our Q&A And we've been working for uh, some time now on a question from Rich in Indian Springs about the Holy Spirit, and particularly the Holy Spirit in the time of the tribulation. And we took the opportunity uh, to basically turn this into a mini teaching on the Holy Spirit, because it's important to understand how the Holy Spirit manifests himself, depending on which dispensation we're in. Because in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, which is up until the time 
of the creation of the church in Pentecost, at Pentecost, which you find in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was manifested in a way that is different from today, the church age. And by that I mean the Holy Spirit would come on a person when they were righteous, but if they turned to unrighteousness, to iniquity, to a lifestyle of sin, uh, it's clear from the Old Testament passages, uh, 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 and 14, Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 11 through 13, and so forth, that the Holy Spirit would leave you. That is not the case with the church. We learn very clearly, uh, as we've gone over several times from John chapter 14 and other passages, that when the Holy Spirit comes on a member of the church who has confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes on you and in you and stays with you forever. The word forever is very clear in John chapter 14. Uh, So quite different from the way the Holy Spirit deals with people uh, in the church age as opposed to the Old Testament. But the church is only going to be here for a fixed period of time, and then the church is going to be taken off the earth in what is called the rapture. We will be taken to heaven, and there's going to be a period of time called the tribulation when God's attention is going to be turned back to Israel. Remember the promised kingdom from the Old Testament and through the Gospels of the New Testament, that promised kingdom that was denied by Israel will be offered again at Jesus' second coming, which is at the end of the tribulation, at the end of that seven-year terrible period of time that is yet future. At the end of that, Jesus will physically come back to the earth and will set up his kingdom after he judges all the Gentiles and all the Jews living on the earth at the end of that seven-year period. That's the judgment of the Son of Man that we've been talking about. So um, when he comes comes back, he's going to um, finish a period of time called the tribulation. Well, during that tribulation, the Holy Spirit will be active. People will be saved during the tribulation. But it's going to be like it was in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit will come on you, but the Holy Spirit can leave you. And that's pointed out in Matthew 24, verses 13 and 14, where we learned that it says uh, those who endure to the end will be saved. And the end is talking about the end of the tribulation period. So that is Matthew 24, 13, and 14, which we've covered really in our last two Q&As. And I want to move on now uh, to what I consider to be one of the clearest passages in the New Testament about how the Holy Spirit functions during the seven-year tribulation period. And we find that in the same uh, message that we have in Matthew 24 and 25. And it's in Matthew 25. It's the uh, the first 10, um, the first 13 verses of Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. And it's called the parable of, of the ten virgins, the parable of the ten virgins. But I want to take a moment and step back to uh, give you a contextual overview that will help you see that this has nothing whatsoever to do with the church. Yet you'll hear many, many 
good pastors today will take portions of Matthew 24 and will take Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, and say that has to be the church because there are terminologies used in those passages that are similar to the terminology for descriptions of the rapture of the church. Well, similar does not mean same, and we need to make that point clear. And one way to help make that point clear, hopefully, to you is that when you go to Matthew 24, it starts out with Jesus on the Mount of Olives, which is just to the east of the Temple Mount, and he's sitting up there on the Mount of Olives with a handful of his apostles, and they're asking him in Matthew 24, what is going to be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And for them, that's the end of the tribulation period, because the end of that age starts the next age, which is the millennial kingdom. So they want to know, what are these signs about your coming uh, and the end of the age? So that's what he's addressing here. So he starts telling them all about this, and it goes all the way through Matthew 24. So if you've got your Bible in front of you, and I pray that you do, Matthew 24, and you go all the way to the end of Matthew 24, and it goes right in to Matthew 25. Yes, there's a chapter break right there. You go from chapter 24 to 25. But this is one of those times where the fellow who put the chapters and verses in the Bible uh, could have held off, if you will, and let 24 run all the way to the end of what we now see as 25. And the reason I say that is at the very beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus begins his discussion with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and then at the very first of chapter 26, and if you go there with me, it says, chapter 26, verse 1, when Jesus had finished all these words, all what words? All the words in Matthew 25 and in Matthew 24. This was one talk called the Olivet Discourse. It's all addressing the same questions. He doesn't go um, to addressing their questions about his coming and the end of the age and then flip in the middle of these discussions to to interject uh, points about the church and about uh, the rapture of the church and so forth. Yes, there are similar terms, but you can easily explain those. And these are um, really a series in and of itself just on Matthew 24 and 25. Um, And you distinguishing between the rapture of the church and the second coming. In fact, we have a whole teaching on that that is um, yet future. Uh, It's already planned for this teaching ministry to, to clearly go through the difference between those two. But there is a clear distinction Uh, between uh, Matthew 23 and Matthew 26, and that's these two chapters, 24 and 25, that have to do with Jesus' discussion of the tribulation period, the end of the age, and the second coming of Christ. He's answering what they asked him, nothing more, nothing less. So when we get to Matthew 25, Uh, verses 1 through 13. This is parable number 6 
of eight parables that he tells uh, the apostles sitting there on the Mount of Olives with him to help answer their question. And we'll start talking about that in our next program. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.